Oh, goodness. After the uh, baptisms this morning, I said that we ought to just cancel everything else and everybody home. I feel like I could do it that way again after the, the singing that we just did in worship. Um, well, it's a good thing it's God's word and uh, not just me or this would be a huge disappointment moving forward. Um, hey, uh, so as Paul said, happy Cinco de Mayo. I just had a, a tiny little thing to, to comment on in regards to Cinco de Mayo, um, as we all know. Here uh, in America is a celebration of Tex-Mex. That's the um, that's what Cinco de Mayo was, a Tex-Mex holiday. It's um, all of you think it's actually Mexican independence, or at least a lot of the the more white of you do, uh, white of us do. It's, it's actually was the um, actually was the day that the Mexican army fought um, the French army um, off in the Battle of Puebla, which uh, in 1862, which they then in 1863 the Second Battle of Puebla they lost. And the French took over. And you might go, wow, America would let the French and the British and the Spanish take over Mexico, which they did. They, held, they, they were, had a second empire in Mexico for about five years. And you go, wow, how would, why would America, can you imagine us letting France take over Mexico? Like, what was that all about? Until you remember that in 1862 and 1863, America was busy fighting itself um, and not taking care of its business. Instead, it was fighting itself and as I read that this week, I thought, you know what, probably ought to just let the church sit in that for a second. And there's a, another sermon right there. That's like number three for today. How do we learn to love each other here in this passage as we're in in John 13? It's going to end with, with some of Jesus' most famous, poignant, powerful, in-the-face teaching about this. Um, and it'll be our pivot point. It'll be this week and next week. It'll be kind of the pivot point at the end of this um, is this, this powerful passage. But, so which makes me want to bracket this idea of love to be so significant, uh, this passage to bracket this sermon with both of them. And so this morning, watching um, Cody and Paula, um, as, they, as they're sitting there, as River there in, you know, hip deep in the water, is shouting out John 14, one through six. Um, it's just beautiful. And seeing their love for him in that moment and wondering does God love me like that? Or, or looking at, um, watching the way Natalie Witt um, is seeing her husband be baptized um, in, in an act of humble obedience uh, by one of his mentors, be baptized, and then knowing that she's about to walk down into the baptismal to be baptized by him. Um, the trust and the, the confidence to be led by him in that way and to be baptized as he baptized her. I wonder, do we love him that way, um, as this wife loves her husband, and do we love him enough to love each other in, in really kind of out-of-the-box ways like that? Do we love him enough to love each other? So with that, let's jump into verse 27, um, which I struggle with verse 27 because it has the word morsel in it, and the word morsel makes me giggle for some reason. I have no idea why. Um, it's a clearly, an, it's a word that we don't use anymore unless we're talking about, um, you know, like chocolate chip morsels. Um, which I said that in the first service, and as, as if I was a robot or, or somebody pulled my string or something, I then said, just like this, I said, um, please don't eat all the morsels, please don't eat them all, because if you eat all the morsels, your cookies will be bald. <laughs> and I realized I am owned by Madison Avenue. I mean, they just, how, when, was, when was that commercial out? How many decades ago was that? And it immediately just triggered with the word morsel. So, the problem is, I was like, what's in a more updated word here? And the, the message doesn't help because it has the word crust. And the word, the word crust is even, the problem with crust is that's even inaccurate. This is unleavened bread. It would not, 
It wouldn't have a crust on it. And so I was like, and so here in the South, I think the closest we can come to, and I don't know if this translates anywhere else in the world, but here in the South, the word we mean here is bite, okay? So Jesus gave Judas a bite of bread. We all know, are we, I mean, yes? Any of you from the North, does that work? Does in the North, would you be like, that's weird? Or is it, would we say the same? So, okay, so we're gonna come up with a new translation here <laughs> so that I don't giggle. Then, after he had taken the bite, Satan entered into him, and Jesus said to him, what you are doing going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that, well, because Jesus had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the bite of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. One commentary points this out, and I, one of the coolest things about being a pastor and studying God's word, um, uh, being required to study God's word, is that um, is that I get to learn all kinds of really cool insights, and this is one, as many times I've looked at this passage, how had this never dawned on me, is that this, this, this language, the word do quickly, really indicates sooner than you had intended. In other words, to move up the timetable, okay? And for the first time, it struck me that this statement would have totally shocked and blindsided Judas, who thought he was pulling something off here. I had never thought about the, the, the power of the fact that Judas has gone to the Sanhedrin, he's gone to the Jewish leaders, he's made a deal for betraying Jesus, he's then looking for the right time to betray Jesus, he comes back to, the, to have Passover with the disciples and Jesus, he's, he, he's got his little secret, right, he's pulling this off and no one knows about it and he's going to be wealthy and he's sitting and thinking about how he's going to spend his money and Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me and Judas has to go into like cover mode at this point like, well, I wonder who that's going to be. Surely it's not me. Maybe it's John. Maybe it's that Bartholomew. You know, Bartholomew, no one really knows much about him. Maybe he's the one who's going to be. He's pulling all this stuff off. And in the midst of all of this, Jesus turns to him and says, go now. What you're going to do, go ahead and do it now. I had never considered before how shocking a blast of cold water that must have been as Judas realizes he knows. He's always known. He washed my feet a few minutes ago and knew a number of commentaries will co comment on the fact that this would have been the perfect moment for Judas to fall on his face in repentance. For Judas to say, you know? You've known? When you, what, oh my, my God and my King, my Lord, I am so sorry. Like it, This would have been the perfect moment. Jesus has given him opportunity. He has washed his feet. He has offered him bread, which we talked about last week. In the Middle Eastern culture, you do not take bread from someone and then betray them. You don't do it. And yet he did so many chances for, for Judas to respond. And here you have this final moment. And Satan has entered Judas and now has, we don't know exactly what that means, but now Satan is apparently running the show and Jesus says, go, do it now. Once again, I want to comment on if you've grown up or you've been, if you've believed ever that at some point in this process of the arrest, trial, crucifixion, death of Jesus Christ, that someone else took control of this, that Jesus was not utterly and completely in control of all of this, you think again. Jesus is the one who pushes the first domino over himself. He turns to Judas and says, hey, the whole betrayal thing, your timetable's off, go now leave. This is significant. It, it was shocking to me. And again, yet again, such a great reminder of as humans what we are capable of being in denial of in our own heart. That in the midst of all of this, 
That when we see around us people who in their own heart have justified their sin, have allowed for their sin, when we do that, when we, when we rationalize our sin versus saying, wow, you know what? I, I, need, I need to just kind of start over. I need to confess what I've done and start over. And yet, instead, he leaves. It says, he immediately went out and it was night. Now, this is not insignificant either. The fact that John mentions that it's night is not insignificant. John eleven nine, 9, just a couple of chapters ago, if you'll remember, Jesus said this, there are 12 hours, in, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. And I think John is making it abundantly clear. Here we have Judas leaving in the dark. He is in the dark as he leaves. Verse 31, and now when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Now again, there's no doubt this part of Jesus has, uh, Judas has left, and Jesus is, is like, he, G- Jesus says, what you're gonna do, do quickly. And then I think they all sit in silence while Judas got his stuff, put on his shoes, walked to the door, walked through the door, Closed it behind him. The door shuts behind Judas. Jesus turns to the disciples and says, in effect, now that he's gone, we can talk. Now. And that's clear in the language. Jesus is going to give his final speech. A lot of you are teachers and you're going to have your last class with a certain group of students. And I did this this last week in my government speech class. And the temptation is to kind of shove everything in that last hour, right? It's to kind of like, oh, and by the way, don't make this mistake and make sure you do this. And when you go to college, talk to your professors and make sure you talk to your teaching assistants and you need to sit on the third row to the right or the left, not the middle. And you you find yourself going like, what all can I fit in? And Jesus is going to do his final, like this is my message to you before I go away. And I think almost under his own breath, Jesus is saying, now that he's gone, this is gonna happen. There's There's no calling this back. The die is cast. Jesus has sent Judas out. This is now going to happen. And Jesus says, now, I think I really think almost to himself, now is the Son of Man glorified. And God is glorified in him, and if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Now, this is strange language for us, but imagine, if you will, Jesus is now speaking of the self, the, the, the mutual glorification of the God in three persons. The Son of Man, referencing himself, is going to be glorified, and God will glorify him, and he is God, and so he will be glorified, and he glorifies himself. This mutual kind of perfect storm of glorification that it represents as we, as we see this in him. And, and by the way, I think this is important. When we talked about last time, I'm, I've been listening to some podcasts and stuff as I do and doing research, and, and it, was, it was weird to me. I get, I've been weirded out by this. I think almost my whole Christian life is I've heard people consistently try to pit God, some of God's character against some other part of God's character. And I've, I've never understood this. We see this constantly with truth and love, right? We see people doing this all the time. Well, God is a God of love, right? And by that, they mean he's not a God of truth. Wrong. Those two concepts aren't in contradiction with each other. God's love and God's truth are perfectly aligned, perfectly, flawlessly. In this one, here's what's wild, is literally hearing a, a two pastors, one pastor cr- criticizing the other pastor. And so this other pastor had used this phrase in a sermon one point saying, if God had a refrigerator, your picture would be on it. 
And he's going, see, that's, that's a, just a fundamental misunderstanding of the gospel. Jesus, Jesus is, you know, God is about glorifying himself. If God had a refrigerator, his picture would be on it. And I'm like, what is the deal? What is, what is with this? Like, I think it's a beautiful picture, the idea that if God had a refrigerator, our picture would be on it. Why? Because he doesn't glorify himself, all that, he doesn't take his own glory seriously? What? Is that what that would mean? To put your children's picture on a refrigerator means that you don't see yourself as the parent? Like, that's, I'm like, wait, that's exactly opposite. Remember we talked about a few weeks ago that we talked about God's holiness and God's righteousness, and we talked about God's love and how God's love for us, even betrayers like us, that that, that that the way God's love, God, the way God's love, the way God loves is His love. That He loves that way is His glory. I mean, Jesus is talking about the crucifixion here. Was Jesus going to the cross and dying in our place and rising again to conquer death? Was that in obedience to the Father or was that out of love for us? And the answer is, well, yes. Yes, of course. And why would we ever pit those in contradiction to each other? Jesus is talking about the cross and referencing how this thing, which by the way, in his culture, would have been the, an ultimate expression of shame. That he would bring shame to himself and shame to his family and shame to his faith and shame to his people. To be crucified was horribly shameful. Stripped of all clothes, nailed at eye level on the side of a road, Men were crucified facing outward. Women were crucified facing in towards the cross as meant to be an expression of shame and humiliation by the Romans. That was done on purpose. To, and the Jewish people believed that dying on a tree was shameful. And so Jesus is going to die in this way and he is instead going to bring glory through it because of who he is. This is just, it boggles my mind that this, anyone would put this in competition with each other. This is the son of man the divine savior from Daniel. It is imminent. Here it comes. It is happening right now at once. The glorification at a new way, in a new way. A new song to be sung in the presence of Almighty God is where we are right now at once. So he says this, I think, kind of under his breath to himself, but it stands out to John. And then he looks up the disciples and he says, verse 33, little children, beautiful word here, little children, yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you where I'm going, you cannot come. We'll get to that passage next week because he's going to repeat it again. Verse 34, a new commandment I give you. Now this creates a problem for us. We're going to come back to that little children thing here in a second. But a new commandment I give you. See, when you're God, you can't just say stuff like a new commandment and not create a theological train wreck that has haunted Christianity from the time Jesus was on the planet. It has been a debate from the time of the Apostle Paul. It is the main debate the Apostle Paul has to deal with, is what do we do with all these commandments? Well, how do we handle them? The writer of Hebrews carries a huge amount of, of, of stones for the rest of us to have to deal with. The writer of Hebrews long ago was wrestling with these very, some of these very same issues. And we'll talk about that in a second. But the question is, which commandment is this? So is this the 11th commandment? We've got, we've got the 10 and then this one. But the problem is those original 10 that God gave to his people, he gave those 10, and then the next few chapters are another about 45. So does that make this the 56th commandment? But if you read the rest of it, according to the rabbis, the Torah holds either 611 commandments or 613. 
No surprise, there's a big fight that's been going on for thousands of years about that. Is there 611 commandments or are there 613 commandments? But regardless, so we're stuck with, is this is Jesus now giving the, the 612th commandment or the 614th commandment? And, and here's another thing that's interesting. Some of the rabbis fight about this. So we have 611 commandments-ish. But then Isaiah comes along, and in Isaiah 24, I think it's 24, narrows it down to about six. It says, of, of all the commandments, these six wrap up all the commandments. That's what they taught. That's what they thought. And then you have David come along and limit it even further than that. And then, of course, we have the passage from the prophet. Um, what does God require of you? To love mercy, right? to practice justice, and to walk humbly with your God. These are the three, these three things, right? That is the law. And so people said, oh, okay, there's actually only three that if you follow those three perfectly, you would live out the law. So you can understand why people would have come to Jesus and said, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus, of course, cheating, gives two. He says, what is the greatest commandment? The first greatest commandment is the Shema. Listen, hear, O Israel, Lord our God, Lord is one. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then there's the second one that's just like it. You should love your neighbor as yourself. So there's the greatest commandment are these two. But is he saying, and he says, by the way, all of the law and prophets are wrapped up, are built upon these, or, or, or proceed from these, or what exactly is how we're supposed to understand that? Is this Jesus saying, this is my third answer now? Or is Jesus saying, as, as one author that some of us were reading together said, this is now his one commandment? And that if you follow this one perfectly, you would fulfill all of the law and the prophets. The answer is we don't know, and of course it's going to be a sophisticated thing. So anytime you hear a simple answer to some of this stuff, probably ought to walk away from it. This has been something that Christians have been discussing. To what degree do, 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 does the, what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scripture, the Torah, the Law and the Prophets, to what degree, what is its role in our life? And to what degree are we not under the obligation there? And, and by the way, none of us practice it. Not even close to any of us come to all of it. And the Apostle Paul said, if you're depending on that to make you righteous, you have to get it all or none. If the law is going to make you righteous, it's, a, it's an all or nothing thing. Since it's not all, it's nothing. That's his point. Um, we, it's funny how Christians love to, we often will reference the Ten Commandments, like we need to have the Ten Commandments up in our courthouses. I mean, we all ignore the commandment to have a Sabbath, but uh, we think the others are important enough to listen to, right? It's like, no, the ones that we really like that aren't too inconvenient, those are the ones that we should. Or, or is it that we are to take Jesus' teachings on the Torah, on the law, on the Hebrew Scripture, and Paul's teachings, and John's teachings, and, and all these others, and fin finish it, figure out how to integrate that into following Jesus' command, the truth, to love one another as he has loved us. I think that's probably going to be more the answer that we're going to be looking for, is how do we integrate these together? Listen to this, the idea of the new covenant. So the writer of Hebrews references Jeremiah's new covenant passage. We're going to read the Hebrews 8, 8 through 13. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, and not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them from the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. So I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds, I'll write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they shall not teach each to his neighbor. Each one, know, each one to his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I'll be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. The writer of Hebrews makes this passage applicable to all Christ followers. Those who follow Christ have this new covenant. 
The writer of Hebrews interprets it this way in verse 13. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete is growing old and ready to vanish away. Now, Jesus said something similar in Matthew 5, 17. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not even a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. The writer of Hebrews says that our relationship with the law, the Torah, is obsolescence. It is obsolete to us. Jesus says it is fulfilled for us. And so as we try to look for analogies to wrap our brains around this concept, this is the one that came to me that works in my brain. And that is that of the relationship between a man and a woman, a romantic relationship between a man and a woman, that they start as friends. And at some point in, in today's world, I think this is a term you millennials still use, at some point they start talking, right? Can you, can you come up with a less committed term than that? Like, could you strategize out? Like, we're not friends anymore, now we're talking. What does that mean? No one knows. Okay, now I understand. So, <clears throat> and then at some point you become boyfriend and girlfriend. You introduce this, this, this person is my girlfriend. And, and then at some point down the road they become your fiance. Now, now things begin to pretty radically change at that point. This is now my fiance. And you don't want to make the mistake that I made sometimes is that as you introduce your fiance as your girlfriend, right? So this is, we're now engaged. And then for, it takes a few weeks for my brain to tr make transitions like that. And so I would introduce Ginger as this is my girlfriend, and that doesn't play well. It's fiancé. Like, that's what I said, fiancé. My fiancé, Ginger, right? And then at some point you get married, and then you certainly don't want to say my fiancé versus my wife, right? Although, although Paul told me Jill was disappointed at how quickly she ceased to be a bride. That it was, it was a, this is my wife, Jill, and she's like, I, w I really wanted to be a bride longer than that. Like, not just a wife, but a bride. So... I made the joke about introducing her as, her as his ball and chain from that point forward. Like, this is my ball. <clears throat> this is a, th so here's why I'm telling you this. This is what's significant to this. Notice that making Ginger my fiance did not abolish her. It did not, she didn't cease to be my girlfriend. That just became an outdated term. It's now, it's now, it's now no longer up to date, right? It's, it's that very word that the writer of Hebrews is using here. The idea here is that it is obsolete. I go from, it's now, it's now outdated. It does not abolish her as my girlfriend. It doesn't, me marrying her fulfills our engagement. It's not that she's not my fiance. It's that she's not just my fiance. She's not, that we, we have transcended fiance. She is my wife. That has fulfilled. It doesn't make anything about our relationship go away Right? It doesn't cease to be. It's no longer, it's not that it abolishes it. That would be silliness. In my mind, this helps me wrap my brain about our relationship. I'm not under the responsibilities of a fiance. I'm now under the responsibilities of a husband. Those are very different responsibilities. It's a very different relationship. It's a very different covenant. It does not, does not destroy the fiance covenant. It just transcends it. It fulfills. Does this make sense? So our relationship with the old covenant is going to be similar to that. You know, the word testament is just covenant. It's just, it's just a different word for that. The old covenant, when you open up your Bible, it's the old covenant and the new covenant. And the old covenant is going to always be hard for us to interpret and have, figure out exactly how and, well to, how and when to apply it to ourselves. That's why if you have a new believer, you don't say, hey, let me give you a Bible. I'm going to recommend you start in Leviticus. <laughs> no one does that. It's why we can hand out new testaments to people and not say like, now listen, this isn't all of it. 
because the entire gospel is found in the New Testament. It's why you give somebody just the book of John. It's why the early Christians, all they had were bits and pieces of this type of stuff and still knew to follow Jesus because Jesus is our gospel. This is important to us. It does not cancel out. It does not, it does not abolish it. It just transcends it. It's a new, better, tougher, greater covenant. As we talked about it last Tuesday, Paul and John and I, Paul pointed out that, that the word new here, this new commandment, is a new as in fresh, unused. It's, it's new as in I'm adding another one. It's, it's not like Jesus, it, it made total sense when, you talk, when Jesus talks about you keep old wine in an old wineskin. You put new wine in a new wineskin. It isn't that the old wine is meaningless but to put it in a new wineskin is, is not going to go well. To put the new wine in an old wineskin is going to be a disaster. That's not how it works. So here's what he says. Verse 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you, so you love one another. We proclaimed some of these beliefs this morning when we sang it. Jesus Christ, as testified to us by the Holy Spirit, working through prophets like Jeremiah, like eyewitnesses John and Matthew, researchers like Luke, teachers and apostles like Paul, that Jesus. That's the Jesus who is going to be glorified. That's the Jesus who pours out his love for us. Oh, how he loves us. How will people believe that or accept it? For the first time, I understood this a little bit differently, the idea that, can you imagine Matthew going around and telling people, hey, you've heard of Jesus? Oh, yeah, he's the guy who raised from the dead. I was one of his disciples. And people go like, right, sure you were. Isn't this going to be the response? Especially a guy like Matthew. Hey, what'd you do before you were a disciple of before you were a disciple of Jesus? I was a tax collector. Right. I'm sure Jesus picked a tax collector. I remember when Pike Weisner preaching, and, and it struck me, and it, it sticks with me, and that happens periodically for each of us when there's something just hits and you go, and the idea that Matthew, in the book of Matthew, Matthew refers to himself as Matthew the tax collector. How shocking that must have been to Matthew that God chose him, the tax collector. How many times does the apostle Paul say that? Really, me? He chose me. Okay, listen, if he chose me, the guy who was hunting down and executing people who were following Jesus, and then Jesus chose me, you have no excuse. This is a crazy kind of love that we're talked about, talking about here. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. Oh, good, there's a signifier. There's a way to tell. Excellent, there's a way to tell. If you love one another, that's how you tell. That's our Christian t-shirt. That's us wearing a cross. That's whatever it is that we say, like, oh, I want people to know I'm a Christian by this choice or that choice or this choice. Well, Jesus says, here's the choice that is different between us and everybody else is how we love each other. A crazy, sacrificial, deferential, patient, service-hearted love. Again, if you've been here more than 20 or 30 minutes, you've heard me say, I am convinced that we don't, it's not that we don't lose college students when they go off to college because of liberal professors or, or drugs and alcohol. We lose them because they saw no love between their mom and dad. They, they, they don't see love between mom and dad. They don't see, and so they go, this is, this is how you know you are my disciples, by your love for each other? Okay, good. Well, you realize that means the corollary is also true. If you don't love one another, people will know you are not my disciples. And so you either have to push through the lack of Christian love that family has for one another and choose to follow Christ anyway, or you say, I see this example and I choose to accept that example. I think that is so often exactly what's going on here. 
We need one another to be able to show love to one another. We talk about how you can go up on a mountaintop and worship God. Maybe you're even better at worshiping God up on a mountaintop, out in the woods by yourself, on a lake, wherever that happens to be. But you can't worship God in community up on a mountaintop by yourself. And if you can't be in community, you can't love one another, and so that you are his disciples will never be evident. We need each other. This is why we're doing this next fall. We're gonna be doing small group leader training, lots of it, a really intense training, so that we can begin to create healthy small groups and life groups within our church, so that we can engage with one another well and give each other opportunities to love, love one another well. This is significant. You understand now also why we keep coming back to hospitality because one passage after another continues to hit the topic of hospitality. You can see why. It's a form of loving one another well. It is also why it is so awesome to get to be a part of the generation of Christians, at least in America, that, have, that are putting an end to Christian ethnic racism. That's, that is in many ways, that's the current generation. The Christians who are alive now are the ones who are transitioning out of an absolute defiance of Jesus' teaching for loving one another by holding racist thought and attitude and opinion about other Christians merely because of their ethnicity or skin color. How we ever got excused that in ourselves is shocking to me. Um, I remember even as a kid um, hearing, like, as a, so growing up in the first church, um, that, that we went to at New Hope, and they taught that we could, you could lose your salvation, and that created kind of an unhealthy fear of God. And then transitioning over to a church that taught grace correctly through Scripture um, created a, a better understanding. But it also means I kind of have this default towards like this thought. I, don't, I wouldn't want to talk to God about that. That's this healthy version of God, a fear of the Lord, I think, that I have. And I remember seeing for the first time as a young man at some point a picture of a cross burning in someone's yard. The idea of that someone would, would declare um, something to, to create hatred and fear in somebody by burning a cross. And I remember at the time thinking, like, I would not want to talk to Jesus about that. I mean, that's got to be an uncomfortable conversation someday for Jesus to go like, so I'm curious about your use of my cross. Now, you understand what my cross was for, right? And you did what with it? This is an uncomfortable conversation to have with Jesus Christ the use of his cross, how we ever as a church, but that we get to be a part of the transition, that this, this is the generation, no matter how old you are, we are the ones who are making that transition out of the normalization of racist thought within the church to going, what the heck were we thinking? How did we ever do that? What on earth? Now listen, this isn't new. The church has been fighting this all along. I was teaching a government speech class and learning that there were numerous founders who refused to sign the Constitution because it didn't abolish slavery. In the 17 and 1800s, there were, there were Christians taking the stance way back then. Their name literally, they don't get a name on the Constitution. When you go visit that thing, there's a, about a half a dozen names at least that I know of that aren't on it because they said, you don't abolish, you don't abolish slavery as a Christian, I cannot sign it and won't do it. That's comforting to my heart to know we've been fighting this a long time, but man, what a cool thing that we're getting to be part of this, of, of really making this radical change. Ethnic racist thought is ungodly among Christians. This is our love for one another. This is, this is a huge place to be no matter what it is, no matter what, well, no matter what ethnicity we're talking about. 
Christianity transcends that. Our love for one another transcends all of that. This, this to me, is, it is so freeing to get to be part of that. Um, Jerome Milton, African-American pastor in town, a few years ago, um, Pike Weisner, the, he's the pastor of First Baptist, and we were, we were on the South Campus with First Baptist, and we're meeting with Jerome on a, on a uh, just having coffee with him one day, and, and, uh, and we do this periodically. There's uh, another pastor in town named Stephen Young, who I'm good friends with, and he comes and preaches here sometimes, and, and, uh, and uh, just a neat guy. And, and, but with Jerome, we're meeting with Jerome, and he said, um, Pike said, hey, we ought, to, we ought to trade pulpits sometime. And Jerome was like, sure, we've done, I've done that kind of thing before. That'd be, that'd be fun. Now, remember, First Baptist Church was founded in 1848. That's, that's before there's not slavery here. And so, and so Jerome, Jerome starts talking. And at one point, Pike and I kind of look at each other because realize Jerome is talking about teaching like on a Sunday night or a Thursday night or something like that. And we're like, well, no, we're talking about a Sunday morning. When would you like to trade pulpits? Like, if you don't want me to come preach on Sunday morning, that's fine. But we, want, we would like you to come preach at our campuses on a Sunday morning. And here this man, I don't know how old Jerome was then, probably mid-50s, something like that, well-known in the community. He starts, literally, tears almost instantaneously running down his cheeks. He said, you're serious about Sunday morning? Like, well, both Pike and I are just clueless. Like, well, yeah. And he says, there's, not, there's never been a black man to stand behind the pulpit in First Baptist Church on a Sunday morning. We're like, well, then how about this Sunday? Like, <laughs> We have to make lots of hard decisions, and this ain't one of them. Like, it's, it's, a, it's amazing how we get to be a part of, uh, and maybe because most of us are part of the majority, it doesn't, it, I mean, like us, going, this isn't a big deal. You preach on Sunday morning. To him, it was a big deal. That type of reconciliation happens because of the, when we follow, actually follow what Jesus taught about this stuff. Anyway. Now, I want to share you this one last insight that's, that was kind of fun to me this week. So I want you to consider this passage we've been talking about. Things like little children, beloved, my commandments, how will we know, love one another, the sacrifice of Christ in this, okay? You got those themes from what we've been talking about? John is the only person who uses the phrase little children like this. He puts it in Jesus' mouth here in John 13, but then John uses it in his own letters. So here we go. Listen to this. Do you think... When John is sitting, pinning this letter by candlelight somewhere with a quill and some ink on something, and he's sending it to his followers, to his disciples, do you think John is sitting there in that room 50 years, 60 years, 70 years later, and he's thinking about that night, what we call John 13, what he would have called the Passover, the Last Supper? Do you think John was thinking about that as he wrote these words? My little children, I'm writing these things to you so you may not sin. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation, the stand-in, for our sins. And not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. The truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Sound familiar? Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. My beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment. It had been 60 years since Jesus called it a new commandment. An old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you 
which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Don't you think John was sitting and thinking about that night as he wrote these words? How about this one in chapter three of the same letter? For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. They hadn't lost hold of that. Through the persecution of Rome, through the scattering of by the Jewish persecution, they had held fast to Jesus' teaching. And that's what he says, that we should love one another. Verse 12, we should not be like Cain, who was one of the evil ones and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. They were being murdered, by the way. We know that we have paused, passed out of life, of death to life, because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, that we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for the power of your word. I thank you that all those thousands of years ago, your student, John, wrote these things down so that we could be challenged, have revealed to us by the power of your spirit, the absolute necessity of loving one another. If we say we are your servants, if we say you are, we are your disciples, then we would love one another in obedience to you, just as you in your love and obedience to the Father, from your love for us, sent Judas out to betray you. Father, I, I pray as well that you would teach us to live out this kind of love in our homes, with our families, with our neighbors and our friends, in our church, and our community. I pray that you would continue to help this love that we are learning to experience in yet in new ways would be part of the ministry of reconciliation that you've given us. Forgive us, Father for how we have failed to love one another as your son has loved us and how we failed, continue to fail at that. Conform us to the image of your son more and more, all the time, every day. Help us to love our brothers and sisters no matter what their ethnicity is, no matter what their beliefs are, no matter where they are, Lord, that we would learn to love them as our brothers and sisters. All those who follow you, Lord, help us to love one another so that people will know we are your disciples. We ask this through the power of your Holy Spirit and the perfect name of your Son and for sprinkling of his blood and in deference and obedience to you and your perfect knowledge. Amen.